the 2019 movie, The Farewell, was released in theaters. It starred Aquafina and was centered around a cultural practice some Westerners find hard to believe. When an elderly grandmother or grandfather becomes terminally ill, you don't tell them. Knowledge of this illness lowers quality of life, allegedly. In the movie, they schedule a wedding as an excuse to fly the family to China to see grandma before she dies. One movie critic on Twitter called it an unbelievable, ridiculous premise, not realizing it's an actual cultural practice. In 2021, two death row inmates tried to sue Osaka government for half a million dollars. They claim not knowing when they die is, quote, mental agony. This happened again last year, too, when another pair of Japanese men on death row tried to sue the government over their inhumanity of not being told their execution date. They served their entire sentence without knowing until just a few hours before they walked to the gallows. They're woken up and marched through the cell block. This is a common practice in Japan. A prisoner sentenced to death might spend decades in solitary, not knowing when their time is up until the sentencing is carried out. Other cultures have similar practices. In South Korea, it was common for doctors to call the family of a terminally ill patient after a bad scan but not the patient. In some parts of Russia, the first call from the doctor is to the family, not the dying man or woman. In India, withholding information about terminal illness is done with both cultural and religious beliefs in mind. In all these instances, the idea of dying well and not causing unintentional grief is of the foremost concern but is not knowing really saving anyone. To quote the French writer and critic Marcel Proust, we may indeed say that the hour of death is uncertain, but when we say so, we represent that the hour to ourselves is situated in a vague and remote expanse of time. It never occurs to us that it may have any connection with the day that has already dawned. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer lay of Noda on the internet. When we were children, our parents sometimes shielded us from adult hardships. That could mean not telling us when money was getting tight or not explaining violent events. It could mean changing the channel when something unpleasant comes on or leaving out details when there's a family fight. We expect this sort of filtering as children, but is it healthy for us, for adults? That's our existential topic of the day. Is it better to know the hour of our death or remain oblivious? What about the other types of awful news? Myth one. As Americans, how much do we shield each other? Our medical system is pretty transparent, but what about genetic tests? 
If 23andMe uncovered a highly likelihood for Alzheimer's or Huntington's, would you want to know? Myth two. Cannot knowing the hour of execution save our mental grief? Or is it easier on overseas prison systems to keep inmates in the dark? We're going to get to our myths. But first, I want to talk to Joe about genetic test. Out of curiosity, because you seem like the type of person who would like want to know your your historical background, where you came from, that kind of stuff. Have you taken one of the genetic tests? I haven't, but my mom is such a geek on that stuff. Because she was adopted, she's just very obsessed with what what everybody is. I I don't give. I don't care. I could kind of tell that I'm Eastern European trash. I, I you know, <laughs> I'm looking at myself in the mirror. Are you one of those that wants to say I'm a quarter Irish and I'm a? You just look like a full blown drunken Irishman to me. Is what you look like. Well, that is both more accurate than I was expecting, both from you and from the genetic test I took. I, I took one for medical reasons. I, I didn't really care what I was. My whole family is obsessed with it. Like my father, especially. He he didn't have a, a father in his life. So he was like, he wanted to know. He's like, what, what am I, a percent French? I'm, I'm you know, a, a 32nd Native American. He's one of those pe- people where he found out he might be like 2% Native American and suddenly he just had like beads all over the place. <laughs> He was identifying as a Native American off the right. <laughs> he was telling me we got to take care of uh, the sacred spirits. And I was like, dude, calm the down. White, the white man is still in all my land. You're like, dad, dad. Yeah. We're Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar because I, I, I did through my mom, though. She did find out that I was um, Czechoslovakian and um, Yugoslavian. Right. And so it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. Right. I would not have guessed that, but that now that you say it, that kind of makes sense. Does that count as tr- European trash? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think it's so, Eastern Blockish. <laughs> yeah, it's all one one. I'm American. I, that's geography is one smear to me. Just it's, um, well, okay. So I uh, here's here's the second part of that. If you took a test like that and it revealed that you had like Huntington's or um, Parkinson's or something that is incurable. And will plague you later in life. Would you want to know? Because it actually does ask that question. It says, "Do you want this information revealed to you?" This is so funny that you bring this up because I, you know I'm a documentary geek, and I was I, was, I love the, the the death row documentaries, and they were saying that about death row inmates are they're the only ones that know when they would die. I think I would want to know, and and the reason I would is I, I work better with deadlines, as you know. <laughs> 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 and I think I would get more done and I I think I would appreciate there's a there's a Tim McGraw country song, Live Like You Were Dying, and it's about his father who who gets cancer and, and goes out and does everything on his bucket list. But I don't know. I don't know if, if I would just go into to fear and, and I I've seen people who are find out they have stage four cancer and and just are miserable. Yeah. You know, they die fast and I think a lot of it's mental. Yeah, I, I don't know. Knowing when you might or when you could die, we're, that's the whole subject of today. It's 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 both death, but also harsh news. How much does shielding each other help? I had a good I, friend. I had a good friend of mine, Joe, and he went in for cancer treatment for the very. And this is what he told me. He said he was shocked at how much of it the doctors talked to him about goodness in you, and goodness meaning no more junk food, all quality, 
whole foods, natural foods. And then another thing was very big on um, self-talk and the people around you and being positive. He said it, it was so Tony robbins he was surprised that it wasn't just medical. A lot of it was, psycholo- it was psychology. But they've almost standardized it in the industry. They've, they've almost like adopted it even at like technical professional levels. So they must work then. They must have some power. Or I think so. Yeah, experts wouldn't do that, right? I I was a fool. I I'd say both a fool and and um, perhaps I I maybe didn't care enough at the time. I clicked the yes button. I wanted to know what kind of weird stuff was gonna come at me later, and um, I I think that probably everybody has something like they have a they have a screening for. It's like two genetic markers where it's like it reveals whether or not you could have cancer, like a higher rate of it. There's a genetic marker for Huntington's. I apparently have the one for Parkinson's. It's um, low risk. So, like, don't don't start planning a new uh, writer for your show yet. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah I, it scares I, you a little bit, though. Parkinson's is a, is a terrible disease, right? I think the first moment I got the news back, like I froze up, like my my heart dropped and I, I kind of like my my I got tunnel vision. Like I, I couldn't see out of my peripheral for a second. I was just so like devastated. It was and a baseball it, bat to the face then. Oh, absolutely. It was it was shocking because I was like, I've never heard of that in my family. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, nobody has made it past like 65 or 70. So it's possible that they just hadn't gotten it yet. Um but then I, I I started thinking about I was like you know it didn't say high risk and it's a long way away I can try to you know be healthy and and yeah do as best I can until then because it's unavoidable so that I I went very stoic like it it took me a it took me I'd say an hour or two before I was like oh right right I actually believe in stoicism and I'm like yeah it's not something I can change so I will continue as if you know but that's that's my reaction is not going to be everybody's. That's that's the fun part is like when I recommended this movie to you, I, like I was like, I think that more encompasses the normal reaction. Um, well, let me tell you about this movie. It's called yeah, The Farewell. Please. It's called The Farewell, and it's about Aquafina, and she's it's Chinese. Her family immigrated here when she was a little girl into the United States. And they're going back. This movie is it's a wonderful movie, and it's one of the few movies I've ever seen. I cried four times and I almost peed my pants laughing four times. So it has that emotional range. <laughs> it's a roller coaster. It really was. And it's got some good auntie stories, you know, where you have that, that the, the know-it-all grandma aunties. At, no matter what ethnicity, they're all the <laughs> right. same. And there's a lot of symbolism. And there's a lot of um, cultural differences that are hard for people to understand. It's hard for an American to understand these, and I think they did a good job kind of taking us through that that journey, don't you? I think so. I, I think that they – I think it was very smart for them not to have an American character being the Watson, being the, the eyes that we see it through, but having an Americanized Chinese person. So they, they knew most of it, but they also got to explain some of it to – me, the dumb audience member. I think it was helpful. Well, and then the kids who were raised in the United States who didn't understand and were pushing back. So that they had every side of it. There's a lot of symbolism in the movie. And it's something the movie you really, if you really watch it and, and just really give it your undivided attention, it's it's very, you know, enriching. It's a, It really makes you think. Yeah. 
So um, if family, you haven't, a family love story is what it is. Because yeah. people, our first for being Western, the first thing we think as Americans is how could you? That's being you know, but it's not you know. So can we can we ask that as a question for you and I again? I hate to turn everything into it conversational today but it, it this is what piqued my interest if you had a family member who like say you had a grandparent and they had a terminal illness they had been diagnosed and you had to apparently fly to czechoslovakia am i getting that right or or, or maybe <laughs> just maybe maybe Yugoslavia is no longer so yeah i think yeah wherever yeah whatever, romanian or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> or, or maybe you just have to go to like the yeah, east coast or something <laughs> And and you had to like show up, and the whole family wants you to pretend they don't have an illness or don't tell them. Uh, oh, by the way, that was the original title for the movie: is "Don't Tell Her." I didn't know that, but in China, that's what it debuted as: is "Don't Tell Her." But say you had to show up, and you had to pretend to a grandparent with a terminal illness that they're fine, so that you can play act this whole like birthday party or a wedding or something to to say goodbye without actually telling them goodbye. Do you think you'd be able to like emotionally do that? I couldn't, but I, none of the men in my family could. We're too emotional. You could tell. We we we're not good we are not good poker players. We we wouldn't be able to. I mean my at my at my grandfather's funeral the men in my family were crying very hard and I've never seen them cry before. They just can't handle that. We're not good with this. <laughs> Mortality. What about you? Okay, that's interesting. So you, if you don't think you could do it because of an emotional aspect, I would probably be the one to spill the beans, not out of emotion, just out of stubbornness, out of out of believing in like, no, you tell people the truth so they can make a, a informed decision. You get on your moral high horse over there, huh, Joe? I live on a moral high horse, <laughs> like I. I I'm like that old Western painting where it's like the cowboy slumped over on his horse, except it's me on morals and everybody around me is tired of hearing it. Um. Well, it, it would be hard for us because we are kind of independent and we are older. You know, that's why the movie was very cool, because it explained that the parents still had authority over the children to tell them, hey, don't tell her that, you know, they put their thumb down and you can't do that with everybody of every age. You know, people get to a yeah. certain age, they're going to do what they want. And some people, we all have those family members that, you know, are so direct and honest that they, they like to devastate everything in their path. And I don't think you're that way. I was going to say, are you describing me? <laughs> but I think, you, I think you think you're doing the right thing by telling them. And they're not doing the right thing by keeping it a secret. Right. So um, what they refer to that uh, in this movie is, is it's a good lie. The idea that if you know... In fact, that is a quote they have in it that um, they they say, quote, when people get cancer, they die. It's not the cancer that kills them. It's the fear. And do you do you think that that's true of anything in real life? Like, is is there any sickness, illness, um, maybe even just poverty? Maybe like, do you ever remember as a kid your parents keeping like uh, bills or like you're going to have to move out soon, but you're not told because – they they think that the the knowledge of it will will cause undue strain. God bless my parents; they were the worst on the other the other extreme. They, <laughs> they were always we had no money. It was even when we did. It's going to be a. There was no Christmas gift presents this year. There's this, there's always these warnings and these threats, and they weren't really threats. They were like these, but they, it never came. So they kind of lost credibility, right? We were we were comfortable, you know, 
but for them to be claiming poverty and this this is the end of the world and then when you get grown up you're kind of like you know the, there's not that many consequences there are some <laughs> right but I, I think we can see by the present political people that you can pretty much do whatever you want <laughs> right and it's okay in the long run were you raised like that? I mean, were you? Were your, did you think your parents protected you? I think your parents threw, just let you kids suffer, right? I um, my first experience. So I, I I lived with my father and um, his side of the family most of my life. They didn't protect us from anything. Like it was you. You heard the parent conversations. They got deep and they got weird, and they were often like laden with undiagnosed anxiety disorders. My whole family was. So there was there was oftentimes talk of like, well, probably gonna have to like rush out and move in the middle of the night again. Like like it was it was so normal to air out all of your worst worries, and it it turned the kids into anxiety ridden messes. Like I'm not gonna yeah. say that's good, that's helpful. Yeah, because they, they you have to filter out, and I and I think there's dangers in being too honest with people. You know, you, you you don't someone you know you you love Rachel and I and I love Joanne. We're not too honest, you know what I mean. You, you got to protect your people's feelings too, right? And and I've, keep them keep them feel secure and safe. I've I've honestly learned that from you and from watching other people who are smarter than I. When we I, when I started this relationship, it was very much like I was just upfront about everything I was feeling. Like it was just like, why wouldn't I say it? This is and and I realized very quickly it's unloading anxiety onto somebody else for no reason it doesn't benefit them at all <laughs> um but if it's an informed decision I, I still stand by that if if like okay so what 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 would you share like with with joanne like what's something that falls under the i wouldn't share it and what's something that falls under the i i would share it if i have any kind of hardship like you know if i get fired from a job or something bad happens i'm gonna tell her right away and the only reason is I'm afraid if I let it go, <laughs> I, I won't have the bravado. I'll be too afraid to do it later. And as time goes by, it becomes a bigger lie, you know. Okay. I think that's a good reason, like doing but, it for the sake of honesty. But I don't burden her with my everyday troubles. And and I'll tell you why. You know, you know women say they don't like men to be fixers. Women can be ten times as worse, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> they just they, they, and then they kind of then I kind of feel disrespected because then she acts like my problems are so trivial. Oh, just do this and this. It's like, oh yeah, I thought of that, babe. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like I haven't given us some thought. I've lost sleep. I've lost hair. I've lost years off my life. Right. <laughs> it's just that simple. What about you? What's what's off limits and what's on? Um, I think sharing about concerns about things dealing with money, I, I think absolutely share them because that's oftentimes my concern, even though honestly, I don't have any problems right now. It's more just like I was raised to look ahead as far as possible and worry about everything along the way, <laughs> but it, it means prudent planning, like, like sharing that stuff. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip ahead a bit to like our science points. That's the reason for sharing um, hardships in life with children and with people and with loved ones is it builds resilience. There is a large sect of psychology right now that is like pro resilience building. The idea that face well, adversity it calluses the kids. I've been through this. I can do this. Yeah, it 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 shows people that um, yes, you can have a problem, but more importantly, you can get past it. Here's the process we use. If you 
demonstrate the process for getting past obstacles and even just hardships that there's no curing or fixing. It's a demonstration to the children that you can bring it together. Like, like you can outlast it. You can day to day it. Um, I try to share things now in my relationship that will be, um, that will work toward resilience. Um, I have stopped so much. Like I still talk about it, but my own anxieties with like writing, I will frequently just be up at night being like, because I'm, I'm built to worry. Like it is a, a, I have both depression and anxiety and you know, I, I deal with it professionally and not, not I'm a professional. I have gotten professional help for it, but I will still sort of like dwell on the fact that like an artificial intelligence will probably replace all writers in the next 20 years. And you know, what, what, you know, what am I writing next? Can I actually do it? Like, do, do I have the chops for whatever I'm working on? And those things I have realized are better left unsaid because there's nothing they can help with. And it's not an informed decision and it's not building resilience. Like it's only my anxiety and I will share it if it is emotionally affecting me. Like I'll say, I'm, you know, I'm feeling hung up today. I'm a little bit anxious or something, but I don't need to go into crazy detail about it. But isn't that, okay. So this is the, let's unpack this a bit. When you, when you in a healthy relationship, it's important to build trust and you build trust by being transparent, right? Yeah. So that's very important. But what's not good is, is, and, and I know this from personal experience, when I verbalize things and start to feel them and, and give them more time probably than they deserve, you end up living the same traumas more times. So instead of, instead of being worried about your taxes one time, you end up living, living it 80 times. And then it never turns out to be as bad as you thought it was going to be. Right. Right. And you and I have had that with, with, with all our affairs, right? I, I, I think that is... That's been my experience. I think. We worry ourselves physically sick over something that most of the time doesn't even come to be. I was about to say it's it's when you get to it. I've seen you do this where you will step by step it. Like you'll you'll reach out, get help, you'll work the problem, and then get over it. I will try to do the same, but once you get past it, you're like, oh my god, I just ate up three months of my life worrying about it and one week dealing with it. It's just such a time burglar. We don't know how much time we have. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. A psychologist might be listening to this and be like, you guys are idiots. But yeah, the idea that you would share enough to show that you're having a process and that you are dealing with something and that, you know, if you if you can involve them in part of the solution, would you say that's yeah. worth doing? I think so. I think it does. And and on the part about the, the psychologist, trust me, I've had my fair team of psychologists and these $550 an hour. What do you want to talk to about today, Todd? <laughs> you know, I say, you know what? I want to talk about the New England Patriots. You're the one that makes $550 an hour. You're the one with a degree on the wall. Why don't you lead me down this trail? Okay. I don't need a $550 an hour friend. Friend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's one last thing that I, I want to sort of like bring up. It was it was um, the the woman who did this, uh, Lulu Miller. Aquafina was the actress. Lulu Miller was the writer and the one who chose to do this, like chose to make the movie. And she originally just had this as a story on This American Life. That's where 
it kind of debuted as she was just sharing about her weird, weird experience. Like her Nai Nai got sick and she had to go and like pretend that she didn't know that it was a terminal illness. Like they just showed up and they're like, hey, we're going to have a wedding and just try not to be emotional. Um, And then afterward, she made the movie. And like Disney pitched her a couple versions, she rejected Disney, like like which is crazy to think about. Um, and then she started producing the movie. They made it, and like every level of them making this movie, her grandma weirdly they didn't tell her. They kept the secret from her. By the way, this is a spoiler if you want to know whether the grandma dies or not. Um, in real life, they were in the middle of making this movie, and they're like, "Oh my god, she's still alive!" And also, every step of it, they're like, "Well." You know, she probably won't see the news. Like, it's an American thing right now. It's fine. And then, like, it got bigger. And they're like, well, it's going to Sundance. But, you know, like, it's an award. They're, they're, grandma probably won't see it from in China. Like, that'd be weird if she was watching Sundance. And then it got bigger. Like, it went to China. <laughs> and they're like. <laughs> they're, trying to, they're, trying to, they're trying to shield her from this. But eventually, it's going to find her some way, right? Grandma's learning right. how to use the internet now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, that's. That's exactly what happened. She actually did find out about it because they, they, uh, she was in like the New York Times or something. The movie was, and it's that's translated in China. And she's like, "Is this movie about me?" She's like, "It's literally called Don't Tell Her," <laughs> and they she's filmed like, it in, in our hometown. <laughs> you could just see her going, "Motherfuckers!" You right, know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and she passed away the very next day from finding. It. No, she didn't. She, from last I heard it, from an interview with Lulu Miller, her her and I was still alive. But I mean, like that. I don't know. How we're we're going <laughs> How angry would you be if you found out? Would you be like, "Oh, thanks, guys"? If I if I did that to you, Rachel did that to you. Your brother did that to you. Would you be like, "Oh, you guys, thanks for thinking of me"? Or would you be like, "What the hell"? No, I they would they would die before me. Like I would be so mad. Like I would. <laughs> there'd be a there'd be a death murder list. Right. <laughs> You're just thinking about it. You didn't. I didn't think you long to think of that. Oh no, they must die. <laughs> no, 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 no. They know that. Like my moral beliefs are like very sort of like stoic, and I also believe in, like I said, informed decisions. I would be very mad. I would be so upset. You'd How be, about you? You you you'd feel like you were cheated out of all that depression and worry, right? You'd be like, "That's my given right. I like being miserable." Guys, misery is how I fuel writing. Like like I don't get to make a story if I'm not miserable at some point. Uh, I'm telling you, the farewell, the farewell, the you really start cheering for the, for the grandma and, and uh, the grandmas that that bo- that bossy old grandma that we all that we all have that know it all. And um, there's a part of the movie that really cracked me up where she's 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 arranging a, a fake wedding, but she doesn't know that. She thinks this is why everyone's here is for this wedding. And she's bossing everybody around the caterers and and the, the, the daughter is like, why can't we tell her? And the dad's like, look, she's happy. She's bossing everybody around. <laughs> That's what she, yeah, she likes it. It was actually the auntie that said that. Look, she loves this. She's bossing everyone around. This has never been happier. uh i i think there's like a there's so many layers to the meaning there like one is she you know joking about her being happy that she's bossing people but she must have thought everybody was just being very lazy and depressed like she's like why is everyone else letting me do all this work (laughs) so okay i gotta ask um how how much would you shield bad news from people like like let's let's go through the layers of this like 
what are the levels of you'd shield or you wouldn't shield somebody? You you know my answer to a grandparent or uh, a spouse, which is I would basically tell them anything so that they could be informed. I, I wouldn't want to tell – I don't like to tell kids about death of pets. That's a tough one for me. You know, the old – they went to the farm or they went someplace else or – I'd like to try to keep them from that because that's something that's a real grief thing. I, I had a situation when I was young. I went to my my great grandmother's um, funeral, and I was little. You know, I was eight or whatever, a little kid. And my grandfather was very mean to me because I was playing and I was having. But I was a kid. You know, I didn't understand it. But he was kind of a. You know, he was really being hard on me that I had to act a certain way, and and I didn't think that was as I grew up. I think it was wrong. You know, they're little kids. They run around. They don't know. You know what I mean? Right. But I, I try to keep kids away from uh, sex stuff to when, before their time, obviously. Okay. And then and then death, death of pets and just death of probably of, of adults as well. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think that when it comes to pets dying, I would absolutely tell them. Uh, I, just so that they know what that process is, that it exists. Like, like teach them... Mm-hmm. To emotionally process it as it happens. And I, I think that that is probably, I don't know, that might be crazy for me to think that that's doable with kids, that you can teach them processes like that. Like, like, hey, you're two, your goldfish just died. Let's, let's, you know, teach you early on. Here's a, here's a micro version of the grief process that you'll have to face with people. I wouldn't say that, by the way, I'm not completely sociopathic, but what about, what about if they got sick? Would you tell what what age would you tell a child that they had a terminal illness at? Uh, you know, and that's that's one that's a sensitive one. But the, I always say the, the only people I really feel bad for are kids with cancer, and I, I think you have to. You know, when there's these doctors visits, you have to explain to them and things they understand why they have to yeah. go and do this, all this stuff, why they have to miss school, why they can't go to this thing, why they have to stay home and rest, why there's putting needles in their arm or a port in their chest. You know. And I, when I see that, I see you see the parents of the kids with cancer. It's actually harder on them. It's killing them. I mean, it's absolutely killing them to, just for their their kid to be so helped. And they they do the best they can, um, but people don't always understand, you know. And I and I've and it's not just a kid thing. I've seen people who are in their seventies and eighties who, who who can't understand their own mortality. They can't believe it. They're like, last year I was skiing and snowboarding, and now this, you know. How? God, why? You know? Yeah. Uh, actually, that's a very interesting and weird thing. I- I've I've met those people, people who are older who have not had a health scare yet, and they don't seem to understand it when they have something ca- catastrophically, catastrophically go wrong. Right. Do you, th- and, and do you they've think lived, they've had it happen in the family and with their their parents, but they just don't get it? Do you think that that plays into it maybe? Like if if there is a good argument for keeping a terminal illness from a grandmother or aunt or uncle, maybe it's the people who wouldn't truly like it. it you don't think they'd be able to fight it? If you could pick those out. I think, I think when things are extreme, you just don't know how people are going to react. Some people, and you've seen this, some people just get hard as steel and some people don't. Some people surrender and some people fight it. But I haven't seen a pattern. Like, oh, this person was a great athlete or this person was a CEO. 
I've seen them commit suicide over that. People who are, are leaders and educated. Then I've seen people who fight right to right. the end and are brave, you know? So I don't, I don't know how you would pick. I think, and we don't know. I don't think we, we even know how we think we know how we would react. Yeah. See, I think you would, I think you'd come at terms with it real fast. I think you would, and then you get busy researching and you, you stay busy just preparing yourself, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate at any time. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of health scares and it, it becomes sort of a, a step-by-step, like, like you said, research. And then I almost treat it like it is like Ikea assembly. Like it's, yeah, you get <laughs> over the one, to this. Yeah. yeah, you try to get over the first hump, right? You try to feel a little bit better. And that's all you think about. You don't think about getting, you know, when you and I had our heart problems. We weren't thinking about run, getting ready for the next Olympics. We're like, can I, <laughs> can I eat something without my heart race pounding out of my chest? Right. I mean, we had real low goals to get better, you know. Can I sweat less when I eat? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I can I not be gray and green? Right. Can I have a can I have a flesh tone? <laughs> I'm not I'm not making fun. This is true. We had this problem. Yeah, it's I I think it's hilarious. You brought up the the country song. I actually heard that on the radio uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh yeah, no, I've. I've had that experience in the light version, the the beer light, the Bud Light version of yeah, uh, live like you're dying. Um, how old would you, if we're gonna put like an age on it? What about like losing a house or a divorce? Because those are both things that I I experienced when I was younger. I think you experienced one of those. Am I correct? Oh, I've done all those. Yeah, multiple times. Yeah. Um. The, what's the question? Um, how how old should a kid be before you tell them we're going to lose the house or you know we're going to get divorced? Um, the, the divorce ones right away. You got to kind of prepare them for the the separation and things are going to be different because it's so hard on them. The house thing I think is okay for me to keep it sheltered from them because I don't think kids care about as much of that of stuff as parents do. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, emotionally and, and uh, health-wise, I think it's important to tackle those right away. But but stuff, losing stuff or Christmases or the, where we're going to live, is those things take care of ourselves. You can tell the kids we're going to go on an adventure and live in a smaller place and it's going to be great. And they're gonna kids go will live school. in a circus tent if you tell them it's going to be fun. Yeah. But the parents, if if we show grief over it, they're they're gonna they're gonna match that that uh, match those feelings. I think that's a pretty good point. Is a lot of it is, do we demonstrate the the process? Like like if we demonstrate panic, like my parents did, the kids are gonna panic, obviously. And if you demonstrate a process where you are going to solve something or you'll get over something, like if you demonstrate that that there's progress, then I think that helps. Um. So do you want to get into the actual, uh, the big, um, what do you call it? The, the the big spoiler in the sky, the the big one on whether or not patients actually make it longer if they don't know? Yeah, what's the what's the math here? What are the stats? So this is only speaking for the terminal, terminal, terminally ill patients. We will get into death row statistics. So like we want to, we're, we're talking generally about if someone knows they're going to die, how does it affect them? Does it actually make their life shorter 
because they know that it's that the end is coming. Um, the way they worked this out is um, there was a study that they did where they followed ICU patients um, who knew they were going to die or, or that they were going to die. Uh, and they were in palliative care or they were like, you know, they had already received a terminal prognosis in their doctor's paperwork, like their clipboards, but maybe they didn't know yet. Um, so they followed the um, National Cancer Center in Korea, followed these people around with questionnaires, basically. And they got data from 619 consecutive patients immediately after they were determined by a physician to be terminally ill. And they followed them around. Uh, they either followed them for six months after the enrollment and, and saw how they had assessed their own survival, or they followed them to the end, like like they followed them uh, to the 481 that made it. And, um, oh, excuse me, I, I misspoke. In a follow-up of 481 patients uh, and 163 person years, they identified 466 deceased patients. So... Um, 19% of the patients died within one month, 41% lived for three months, 17 lived for six. So, like, when I say they were following terminally ill patients, they were following people with a very short amount of time. Like, this is not, this is not a, a longevity study. This is, they were checking on people right before they sort of met their end. That makes a um, difference, too, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. All diseases are not the same. At the so same when, stages. Right. So the reason I, I, I spent so much sort of like boring, painful minutes explaining that, it's because in our actual uh, movie, The Farewell, now that I know the real life version of Nainai, uh, Aquafina slash Lulu Miller's grandma, actually lived to see the movie come out. Now I'm like, oh, they are not really like like apples to oranges as far as like how long they made it. Because I, I don't think that proves that not knowing allowed her to live longer. Because after reading the study, the conclusion was, um, spoiler, patients who were aware that they were dying and entering palliative care or in the ICU, um, wherever they were, however they were entering it, uh, knowing did not affect their survival rates or their time or um, it didn't seem to influence their mood very much. Um, because one of the key parts of this is near the end they knew anyway like if if you are dying and like your body starts to fail you know like <laughs> it 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 may have made them feel differently briefly for the period of time where they could have been told like say say your family keeps it from you you maybe have a little bit extra time where you don't suspect anything's wrong with your body but when you lose eyesight or when you become progressively more ill and you're bedridden, or if your body locks down, like, like, or you just feel like, like you and I, we had, you, um, blood pressure was the big one for, for me. And that's a silent killer. Like you don't know until things start to fail or go wrong. And when they do, you can tell, like, even if you don't have a diagnosis yet, you know, something's terribly wrong. So, um, uh, sorry to inject my own little rant into this, but yes, conclusion was obviously it didn't matter. Like telling them, not telling them, it didn't affect the speed of death. It only affected how well they prepared for it. So then that goes to who is this for? You know, it's like it's like kind of going to like a to go when you go to a funeral to honor a person who's passed, right? We're not really 
honoring them. We're 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 honoring us, right? It's for us. The funeral's for us. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, is that what's the most? Is that the lesson out of all of this? Is that we get to see that person not scared and not in pain just for a little bit, just to kind of, you know, we've all had this experience of seeing somebody who we've loved for many years, who who's past, who's who's sick and and old, and you just wish they were the way they used to be. And you tell people they weren't always like this. You know, they were strong and young and smart. And I, I, when my grandmother passed, a lot of family members kind of stayed away a little bit. And I, I believe it's because it, they wanted to, like she, she, her, her faculties kind of went, and she kind of acted a little bit batty, and you know, she, she was having congestive heart failure, so it, it. it messed with the oxygen levels in her brain. And I, I realized that some people just wanted to remember her how she had been. And honestly, if we didn't tell her she had a disease and then we invited everybody to say goodbye without her knowing, they would have had that. They would have had that mental snapshot of her basically in her latest prime before she went. I don't you know, know my, if that's I, fair. Yeah, I, I kept to cut you off i my, my grandfather was a was a was a horrible alcoholic and and uh, it, it, his his disease progressed worse and worse and he lived into his 80s and he was miserable he was just miserable and he made everyone and, uh, he had a lot of people that loved him and he, and he alienated him from everybody but what really surprised me about um when he knew his you know when his liver was gone and he, he things just started falling off of him and he knew he didn't have much time was how frightened he got he was such a mean man in every way, but to see him become so humble about his health, I, I don't think anything humbles you like a health scare, and certainly not. I mean, he, to the point where he's calling me, telling me he loved me. That guy didn't tell me he loved me for 30-something years. I don't right. think he even thought it until he was on debt. On, not that he didn't care for me, but you know what I mean? <laughs> he was not a I love my grandson kind of guy. Until he had one foot in the grave, and it just changes you. So maybe that's worth it, right? To get some kind of sweetness, to squeeze some sweetness out of these old bastards. <laughs> I, I like that. I like the way you put it more. I was more thinking it might be good to show younger people the humility and universal humility that death brings to us. That that. You know, but I don't think you understand it when you're young because you don't think it's going to happen to you. Yeah, <laughs> even if you like, see it. Yeah, I don't think. I think that I think aging is only thing only you understand when it happens to you. I think you think, huh? I'm going to somehow avoid this. <laughs> I, I, your I, fantasy world that you live in, or your fantasy writer. Shit, you probably think you're some sort of a Dracula or something. I don't know. Lich. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm. You think you're going to live forever. Yeah, the the word is lich. It's when somebody uh, becomes so smart they become undead and they're unkillable. That's, <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, you're gonna think your way out of it. <laughs> Speaking of big brains trying to think their way out of death, did you hear about the um, the Japanese inmates that tried to sue their way out of their execution, or at least get enough money to like stay their execution because they they weren't told when they were going to die. Yeah, in Japan it's common that they were doing that and I I think it's interesting. That's a lot of money to get on your books a half a million dollars, right? Yeah. You, I don't you get a nice TV and everything. <laughs> Do you think they'd let them have it in prison like they they're like 
<laughs> living the life up right before they they get called. Well, it's funny you say that because again, I watch these documentaries about um, death row inmates all the time, or people who just lifetime they they can have they can make a certain amount of money every year from the out, not from their crime, not from what they did. They can't sell the rights or not, but they can write. There's a few guys that become writers like you, and they, and they make I think it's like eighteen to twenty thousand dollars they have. Which is a lot of money in prison. I mean, if you're going to do a conversion or a, it's that's like making well over a hundred grand. It's a lot yeah. of top ramen and cigarettes. Well, it is, and you get a lot of extra food. They get a lot of everything. But I just thought that was interesting. That, but it's capped. They can't make a million dollars in jail. It's it's about. But you don't need a million dollars in jail. So, so point being, um, I think I think what you're saying is that they're politically trying to to save their life by by putting up a front of this is this is inhumane yeah i think that's pretty scary to be just sitting there for 19 years and all of a sudden you march off to dead man walking that 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 terrifies me just thinking about it is it humane if you have a death row inmate who doesn't know when they're going to die and you don't tell them and you just show up one day like they literally don't get any um they don't get any advance notice except like maybe an hour like the the guards in japan will show up and tell somebody it's like, hey, make your peace because we're going to be back in an hour to drag you off. Or they get nothing. They just get dragged off and, and they don't get, you know, nobody hears from them again. I can't imagine anything crueler. Like sitting in prison not knowing if it's going to be a week or a year or, you know, 20 years. Do I get to write a memoir or am I limited to a Peanuts cartoon before I go? You know, and, and then, of course, the victim's family and, and maybe law enforcement. Or the justice system will say, well, you know, their victims didn't have a lot of time to decide, right? Right. Is that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Yeah, I, I don't – I think the reasoning they give out in the official um, – the government releases from Japan is uh, it's more humane to not tell them because they'll suffer if they know how long they have. Huh. I think that's horseshit. I honestly – I'm sorry for my language, but I, I totally believe that it's just easier on the prison. Like, it's easier to control the prison population if they don't know when their time is up. That makes sense. Um, did you read this article about the death row inmates and how, how their time is getting longer? How it's not, they're not getting executed as fast as they were? In, a, in America or in Japan? In, in America. I know that there was some weird snafu about lethal injections. Is that what we're talking about? Well, yes. Um, the lethal injection thing is, is, is becoming a problem because <laughs> the the chemicals they use have different laws in different states. So it's okay to execute someone, but they can't get the drugs to do it. So it's a supply, <laughs> it's a supply issue. <laughs> Would that be great? Like, hey, you can't give me because you can't get the stuff the the stuff to put me to sleep this is a, yeah, you got we put this in the show notes this is a very interesting article i i was watching this program about um, death row it's on point to this and and the death row inmate was talking about what it's like to be on death row what he was saying was they get very little sunlight and there's no sunlight inside where they are on, on death row and this is in texas which is a, you know one of the the, the busiest death row <laughs> And what he said is you don't know what time it is because they just run meals around the clock and they wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. He says the only way you know what time it is by is as soon as they wake you up for dinner or for lunch or for breakfast, you ask what meal is it. Then you know what time it is. Oh. So 
And I thought that was interesting that we still want to know, even though it doesn't matter if it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. We want, we still as humans want to know. Right. This this really got me, you know, studying, doing the prep for this show. I thought about um, there was a serial killer in uh, where, we're, where we're, we live in Vancouver, Washington, uh, Portland, Oregon. I don't. Do you ever remember Wesley Allen Dodd? Do you remember this guy? No, I don't. Well, he he did horrible things and, and murdered some children, and and um, he waived all of his rights for all appeals and went right within a year to be executed. Now, Joe, would you want to spend twenty years on death row, or would you want to waive every right and go to the front of the line? I guess it depends on the circumstances. If if I had done something horrendous like kill children. I would know on some level something was deeply wrong with my psychology, unfixably so, and I would I would be willing to waive rights. Like if I was a doomer and I was like, yeah, no, I'm a monster, I would I first <laughs> just do it yourself, but uh, or yeah, if you if you end up getting caught, yes, I I think I would waive rights in that circumstance. Would what you what if it was a let's say it was a crime of passion? Let's say it was a, some, an accident that may have. It was a manslaughter that you just made an accident. You made a mistake and somebody died, you know, and you felt terrible about it. But would you want to wait twenty years and live, like I said, not knowing when breakfast, lunch is, living in this thing? Uh, no, unless I had something to fight for. Like if if I made prison reform my. Um, if if I took up the sword and shield and like wrote from prison every day about prison reform and like try to get published in the New York Times, maybe then I would want to wait 20 years in the hopes that I got some change through or spoke my piece. But if it was just about the waiting, I don't know. I don't know if I could deal with that. Joe, I'll see if you I'm going to quiz you on your own story. See if you remember. But do you remember what you said? You- Joe's done some volunteer work where he did Toastmaster clubs at a prison, two inmates. Do you remember what you told me about what, what how the reception was from the inmates? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know what I told you, but I remember that they were – everybody who was in the program, um, they were there to learn to speak better and communicate better and do public speaking, which lowers recidivism. And everybody there was extraordinarily – congenial like they 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 couldn't have been warmer and nicer to us uh when we went into volunteered and isn't that nice and then what that said to me was that, that you just said they, they were just so grateful that that you guys were taking time out of your lives to come in and help them they just really showed that and you felt that and to me that says that there's still life in us even though we've done something horrible even though we're on death row, we still have some good feelings and good, you know, because to act that way, to act grateful is a sign of what? Happiness. So they are happy when they're in. It's not all bad. Right. If if you are asking, for one, I, I, I believe that if you're going to reform somebody and truly try to make them a better um, part of society, uh, the American prison system is the worst system for it. I, I think we almost intentionally pervert minds and warehouse people who otherwise should be seeing somebody to help like they i i don't believe in soft help i don't think they should all see like we're joking about psychologists being professional buddies and friends i think they need actual serious like education program help probably medication almost all of the people i've met in prisons 
if they are acting erratic or dumb or psychopathic, they need medication and they need like <laughs> they they need they need serious reform and and something to basically break them back down to childhood where they originally got broken. But if we can't live with them, it's really I mean like you said, if if you are a serial killer, I I I actually do believe in the in execution if it's not just the state being uh, aggressively against crime for the sake of politics. Like, I, I don't think that here in Texas we are necessarily executing the worst of the worst because we have so many um, terrible people. I think it's because, you know, the governors here get more votes when they are tough on crime. And so we throw the switch on the electric chair because it gets us votes. Well, so now that's interesting. So, so this article is talking a lot about what's changed about death row through the years. And there's a trend that's happening right now that's very interesting. It's on point. Is um, the sentencing from time from sentence to execution in 2000 for the year 2000 was about 11 years. Fast forward to 2020. Now it's approaching closer to 18, 19, 20 years is the average. Now this is happening for a lot of different reasons. Um, the, the biggest reason being. The whole country seems to be kind of softening its stance on who it sentences to death. More people are getting life sentences. Part of it's financial because it actually costs more. It actually costs more to execute somebody than it does to keep them in life or prison for a long time. But what they're finding, Joe, is that a lot of these people are being executed now. Their crimes happen in the 70s and 80s. And it just seems like over time, people forgive people soften their stance on it even the victim's family so does that mean that time really heals everything okay that is a really good question did you ever do anything you regret when you were young but it was so far ago that you actually forgot your reasoning for doing it yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i have some regrets yeah, I have a couple and I I don't remember why I did them like I, I now know like I, I can say that there was one time where I threw somebody under the bus at a job I worked at when I was very young and it, it ruined their life temporarily like it was like they needed that job they ended up getting fired I felt terrible but I don't remember exactly what my rationale was I wouldn't have gotten in that much trouble anyway and I feel horrible about it. But it happened so long ago. Like, it was almost at this point, like, I was a teen. So, like, I I wasn't, I physically wasn't the same person. It was a different person that did that. I I do feel that way about some things I've done that I just, I'm just not that person anymore. And not that I'm perfect now, but I would never, it's funny, you know, it's funny. There's things that you've done that you would never do now. The things that you did every day that you would never do now. Right. You know. So, can I can I walk you through um, more like the um, the philosophy of of what we're talking about in in the movie The Shawshank Redemption? Morgan Freeman's character says, "You know, do I regret what I did?" He's like, "I was a different person." He's like, "I wish I could talk to that kid, but yeah. I can't. I don't even know that person anymore." Yeah. Um, there's there's this um, thought experiment called the Ship of Theseus. Have you ever done this or heard of it? Never heard of it. Okay. 
So we're gonna we're gonna spend five minutes uh, navel gazing and uh, torturing other people. It's it's a very old thought experiment. It's um, from old Greek, and the idea is uh, Theseus, a you know a hero, uh, is sailing home across the Mediterranean, and he has a ship, and at some point a storm knocks out his mast, and they have to like saw down a tree and replace it. Is it still the ship of Theseus? Does he still own it? Is it his ship? Is it the the fabled ship that won whatever battle he's coming from? I think so. Okay. This is, so, this is a symbol. It's a symbol, right? Yeah, it's it's a symbol. And then, you know, uh, a week later, um, a sea serpent rakes the side of a ship, takes off almost literally every plank on the outside of the ship. They they beach it and they manage to rebuild it with like planks they find and they they season it on the beach and they get it going again. Is it still the ship of Theseus, even though the now the outside skin and the mast have been replaced? Is it still his ship? Yes, yes, it is. So then we keep the exper- the experiment going. Um, at some point, you know, uh, beetles get in or, or or rot sets in or whatever. And they have to replace the inside because the inside timbers are now the oldest thing on the ship. At this moment, they have replaced every stick and timber and nail in the ship. Is it still the ship of Theseus? No. Now it's uh, the <laughs> now it's Bob's ship. <laughs> I was going to say it's, yeah, it's from Home Depot now. So no, it's it's the ship of Home Depot. <laughs> so that's that's the death row logic. It's it's you and I, you know, as humans, every seven years. Are our cells slowly replace themselves, or at least their parts? Um, like the cells in your body, their component parts take about seven years to replace, um, to to just be totally replaced. Like your your cells divide, the old ones get um, you know ejected or eaten. Uh, autophagy happens, um, or uh, you know your your brain ejects old carbon as a waste and like spinal fluid flushes it out <laughs> like like you every seven years you're literally a different person every seven years your hormones change that's probably why we're not as dumb as we were when we were young although i still will do a lot of dumb things for fun um, the seven-year seven itch right with you want to change jobs change relationships change where you live exactly um and not only that your your memories physically change uh, uh they've done studies where They'll have people look at um, – they'll, they'll recall memories, and they'll try to recall detailed colors. And they have found that um, your your memories literally fade in color vibrancy or light vibrancy. So, like, <laughs> you don't even yeah. have the same memories of what actually happened. They've said that about – detectives have said that about eyewitnesses, that they, they eyewitnesses are terrible witnesses. That, that, that Their memory of what happens has changed. It is not correct. Even though they were physically there and saw this traumatic event, you would think it would be tattooed, stained in there. No, it changes. Yeah, that's actually how uh, or why I keep getting kicked out of jury duty. Um, I was on a panel to do um, jury duty for a uh, a very extreme case, and it was dependent on an eyewitness, and they asked everybody. I, I almost tainted the jury pool single-handedly because they started asking me about can you convict somebody on eyewitness testimony? 
And I started talking about verbal priming and memory vibrancy and like, (laughs) and they rushed me out of there. They're like, no, get out. I could just see, I could just see, I just see the turdy going for fuck's sake. Who is this (laughs) Jaboli? I could just see you with one of those wigs on from the friggin' uh, English. (laughs) So just see you just really loving, really loving your moment in the spotlight there, Joe. What a jackass. Excited for jury duty. The only person (laughs) that wanted to be there and talk about this stuff. I was gonna I was gonna have a podcast from jury duty. Just, they wouldn't <laughs> let me bring in the equipment. But that's 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 the question we're asking is if you're on death row and it's been twenty years, you, you all of your cells have changed, your your hormones have changed, your memory has changed. Um there are And the structure. Of, your your life has got such structure that everybody does well in that, you know. Yeah. And having a routine and not being and being separated from from you know there's always some mental health and addiction issues involved in in these things. Well, it's ninety percent of the time, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> With some luck, that they're not not only have to, has their mind and hormones changed, they're not on whatever addictive substance they were on when they're on the outside. Um, and, and there's that whole yarn of like when a somebody comes into like their um, parole hearing and they say, I see my victims you know, every time I close my eyes, which physically just isn't true. Just the way memory works. Like they can, they can see the narrative of what they've done and whatever image they've tried to hold on to. But and we know you, that we can't remember yeah. people that were, were very close to us. I mean, we do, but we don't, right. We don't remember them that well. They're gone. Yeah. There was um, one of the quotes um, in the, court testimonies and and the the guys in japan who didn't know when they would die and he said you you know you wake up without warning one day and you die for a a narrative or a story that you're not even connected to anymore (laughs) which i mean that's kind of the problem is if we're going to execute people you started with the question of would i want to sit on death row for 20 years my answer was basically a roundabout only if i had something to do (laughs) but honestly it, it's it's unfair or at least foolish to warehouse somebody, pay for them, and keep them around for that long if you're just going to kill them in the end for something they honestly, at that point, can't repent for. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm.